Hello, and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, and other experts to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I'll be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark groves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. The book we're considering today is the second volume of the Border Trilogy, The Crossing. And we have two special guests are special because of the relationship and the way they work. And this would be the Brothers Elmore. Dr. Jonathan Elmore is Associate Professor of English at Savannah State University and a managing editor of Watching Review. He researches and teaches composition, environmental humanities, and Corbin McCarthy studies. He is the editor of fiction and sixth mass extinction. Narrative in an Era of Loss, published by Lexington, and co-author of An Introduction to African and Afro-Diasporic Peoples and Influences in British Literature and Culture Before the Industrial Revolution. His scholarship has been published in the Cormac McCarthy Journal, Mississippi Quarterly, the British Fantasy Society Journal, Orbit, the Journal of Liberal Arts and Humanities, and the Criterion, among others. His twin brother, Dr. Rick Elmore, is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Appalachian State University and Senior Managing Editor of Book Reviews at Symposium. He researches and teaches in the areas of 20th century French philosophy, critical theory, animal philosophy, and Cormac McCarthy studies. He is a co-editor of The Biopolitics of Punishment, Derrida and Foucault, published by Northwestern University. His articles and essays have appeared in Politics and Policy, Simploque, I'm going to guess, <laughs> or Simploque. Uh, Symposium, Mississippi Quarterly, and the Cormac McCarthy Journal, among others. Gentlemen, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. I do appreciate it. And you guys are, in my experience, relatively unique. I guess there are other literary critics and scholars who have worked in tandem, but it doesn't seem like they do so regularly with much of what they write. And so in this case, I think, John, you discovered McCarthy first, right? Or it was a near thing? Well, discovered is probably too grand a term. We were both in undergrad together. And and as an English major, I read some Cormac McCarthy. And I think, was it Blood Meridian? I recommended one of them to you. Yeah, Blood Meridian. And then as I was getting my doctorate at the University of South Carolina, I I studied more formally with David Coward. And we, we, that was right after uh, No Country had come out. Uh, And and I I think we read No Country and all three horses in the road in that class. And, and that's where I sort of actually got into some McCarthy scholarship and whatnot. And I think Rick, well, you should say what you, I think you were still reading through them, but we weren't really studying it at that. Yeah. So we, John's right. He turned me on to McCarthy, just sort of literature I would enjoy sort of. And then really our collaboration started with, so we, we decided, Hey, it would be fun to write a piece together. And we wrote a, a piece of sort of pop cultural scholarship over one winter break and just had a great time writing together and then the following year, a, a call came out for uh, a McCarthy volume, like McCarthy and philosophy. It might have been Chris Eagle's collection, ultimately. Okay. Anyway, a, a collection came out, and we were like, let's put in an abstract for it. And we put in an abstract. I was doing a lot of work on neoliberalism at the time. And so we, we had just both reread No Country recently, and we were like, let's do a piece on neoliberalism in No Country for Old Men. And that ultimately didn't go in that collection, but it ended up, up coming out in the Cormac McCarthy Journal. And then the following spring, we thought, oh, that was fun. Let's do it again. And really, that piece on the road was the moment where we decided, no, we're just we're we're all in on doing McCarthy scholarship together. And we have, you know, co- co-authored what almost a dozen articles together now at this point. So that's that's how we kind of got to where we are. 
and this is new enough that neither of you included it in the little bios you sent my way, but I know that both of you had just joined the editorial review board for the Cormac McCarthy Journal. So welcome aboard. Thank that. you. So here we are talking about the crossing. And I would say that there's a certain subset of McCarthy readers who don't like this novel because it is long and complicated and very much departs from a, at times, from a plot-driven narrative. But there's an equally ardent love of this novel as one of one of the great works of his overall corpus of work. And I will freely admit I fall in that second category. This blew me away when it first came out. And with my, I don't know how many rereadings it is, but this recent rereading to get ready for this podcast, it, it blew me away yet again, sometimes a little different. So there are, are a few things I thought we could talk about. And the first thing I will tell any new listeners just jumping in, this is a kind of entry-level academic discussion kind of podcast, which means we're not always cognizant of spoilers in the way that a book review tries not to give away too much of the ending of something. Although many book reviews of The Passenger quoted the last paragraph of the novel, interestingly. And of McCarthy, a lot of times the answer, with a few notable exceptions, the ending's not something that you have to worry about giving away. Maybe Blood Meridian, Cities of the Plain are ones that are a little different than that. And so, again, to new listeners, just a warning, there'll be spoilers here. I wrote in the notes to you guys, each of the volumes of the Border Trilogy is, and I meant to double check to make sure I'm right on this, but it's four books within the novel. But I would argue that Crossing, despite having four books, is really composed of three acts, right? There's finding out about the wolf, trapping it, and then taking the wolf, crossing down to Mexico with the wolf. Then there's coming back, finding out what happened to his family, and crossing again with Boyd in the attempt to start recovering his their father's horses, as they put it in the novel. And then finally, after that goes kind of sideways, his return to try and find Boyd and his instead finding the bones of Boyd and, and how that goes. So we have here then a pretty straightforward plot, it seems like, until you read the book and you realize <laughs> that the bare bones I gave you is about all the plot there really is. What do you, what do you make of just the overall action of the book and how this follows up as the second volume of the Border Trilogy? I'm springing that on you. It wasn't really an outline, but... Well, you know, no, I mean, I think it's... I mean, you already talked about this to some extent. There, there's a way in which it's hard to talk about the Border Trilogy in seven, seven volumes, where, you know, there, there's an arc throughout All the Pretty Horses all the way right through the end of, of Cities that, that it's hard to separate. And, and, and when Rick and I were preparing for this a little bit, we were talking about trying not to get into the first and third volume much, but it's, it's hard to keep. Right. And I think, but one of the challenges of this book is it's very episodic in a way, where I think that your, your outline works just as well as any other way to think about how this book is organized. But there's this series of encounters that Billy yeah. has throughout the book, particularly books two through two, three, and four. But I hate, hesitate to call them standalone scenes, but they are episodes. Yeah. There's something that were quite lengthy. And I think that's one of the challenges of this book to some extent is you'll have these things that on, on the surface of it don't seem all that connected. That, that make up a, a loose plot, at least, for the book. I was just going to add that I think, too, it's while it is a kind of simple story in a way of 
a boy slash man who encounters this wolf has a sort of life-changing experience. And we can talk about what that experience is. But that, I think the first book sort of sets up many of the problems that the novel then tries to work out. And then you have, you do have not just in your formulation, I think the, the stakes of that partly are this constant sort of, he goes to seek something thinking he could find it and then finds not the thing he thought he would find. And that right. happens over and over. And I think, you know, a number of po- people have, have said in the scholarship that they feel like the first uh, section really reads as an independent story. Yeah. And then you sort of get, cause the wolf in some sense never comes back. But for us, I think we read the first book as setting up the philosophical problems that the novel's trying to get through. And I think one of the things that makes the novel so difficult for people is it's his most dense philosophical novel in a certain kind of way. Certainly different than the straightforwardness of All the Pretty Horses. So to go from All the Pretty Horses to that is a big shift. But in that way, this sort of philosophically speaking, this kind of constant refrain of setting up a couple of problems and then trying to work them out, as John was saying, not just in each book, but in a number of encounters with a set of really important figures that I'm sure we'll get to talk about later on. You know, if I was going to describe this book in a single word, the impression or tone you feel from this book, I think I might make it loneliness because that first section has him leaving the family behind and traveling just with the wolf in isolation. And he's always in his own thought in his own head in marked contrast to the opening book of all the pretty horses where he's always bouncing things off Rawlins and then off even Jimmy Blevins and other people. And then of course, at the end of the novel, he ends kind of alone as Billy does as well. But there's a lot of companionship throughout the book. And and here we we start with the dearth of it and then we regain it with Boyd. And then again, as I said, things go sideways. What about some of these these folks he runs into, these these guys he he stumbles upon throughout? I refer to them as seers and wise men in the little quick outline we wrote. Uh, are there some of those who really stand out to you guys or who are they serve certain purposes? Oh, yeah. Actually, Rick, do you want us maybe start in book one with, with Donald Norflaw on that? I mean, I know he's in some ways different from those later figures you're talking about, but I do think he's the first one. Uh, these kind of, well, I, I like your, your characterization of them as the seers or wise, wise, but I think that's right. And I think that that's one of the real messages of the book, not for this purpose, but Rick was just saying, you know, he goes forth to find something. And what he always seems to find is, is one of these or more than one of these sort of wise people that teach him, right? And, right. And Darren Rufford is certainly one of the first ones. Is it too early for a quote from the novel? No, please. So just we remember at, at this point, Billy is trying to trap the wolf because it's attacking his family's farm, or at least the word it's going to be attacking his family's farm. And he goes to Donna Norfolk uh, for for a matrix for a scent that in theory will draw the wolf to his trap. Right. And and our Norfolk sort of tells him a bit about the uh, the nature of the wolf and. and he says it's a multiple cases, but this is on page 46. He'll say, between their acts and their ceremonies lies the world. And in this world, the storms blow and the trees twist in the wind and all the animals that God has made go to and fro. Yet this world men do not see. They see the acts of their own hands or they see that which they name and call out to one another. But the world between is invisible to them. And caught in this sort of sense of, of their own agency, they miss, according to wonderful kind of the, the essence that is that is the wolf, who's not these things, right? And we're gonna he'll say later that the wolf is like breath, the wolf is like air. And even the matrix itself, as he will say, is like the wolf in that it's more than a sum of its parts. And the wolf there is not made up of what does he say? Um, 
blood and bone and fur and teeth. It's something else. Right. Rick, he wants to wait. Go. <laughs> no, and I think I think that's right. And I think then what really comes out for us in book one is in book one, we get this setting up of a, a certain kind of philosophical problem. And I think loneliness is a way to talk about it. Or, or in, in a certain sense, I think McCarthy is interested in what's the nature of reality and mm. what is humanity's place in it. And what you get in this discussion with Arnulfo is really a discussion about like the the wolf is this certain kind of creature that is, as John described, sort of ephemeral. It's not a thing. It's, it's an activity. He says it's like a snowflake. Like you can't catch it because the moment you catch it, it melts in your hand. Right. And then he says that the wolf is made, uh, the, the, the wolf is made like the world is made. So we get this picture that the world is this dynamic, unfolding activity rather than some concrete thing. And then. Which is consonant with the line from All the Pretty Horses, where the idea of the world is kind of torn down each day and rebuilt each day at one point. Absolutely. And I think it's repeated again in this book somewhere. Absolutely. And so for us, that that kind of idea of seeing McCarthy as setting up this problem of we humans live in a world that is structured in a certain way. Say it's it's a it's a process, not a thing. And that then the question becomes, okay, but if that's true of us, if that's true of the world, how to live in the face of that is I think then a question that unfolds throughout the novel. And so in a lot of ways for us, I think this first encounter with Anufal is the encounter that sets up the problem that I uh, think we're going to see played through when, for example, in book two, we meet, I think, the most important character in that sort of seer in that book, and that is the priest right. in the ruins who tells Billy the often quoted line that the world's a tale. And so this idea of the world as tale picks up in some ways on this notion of the world's an activity, it's a telling, it's not a thing. And just to quote from page 143 that really brings this home, what was here to be found, this is uh, what he tells Billy, the priest tells Billy, what was here to be found was not a thing, but a tale, this world, which seems to us a thing of stone and flower and blood is not a thing at all, but a t- but is a tale. And so again, we have that idea of this kind of dynamic nature of existence, of things in the world. Stuff is a an action, not an object. And so I think we're going to see that idea philosophically being played out to think about if that's true, what does that tell us about human endeavors? What's that tell us about human ability to live? What's that tell us about things like love and loneliness and so forth? Well, and we also get the incredibly, the couple of very strange metaphors of the one where we had the the fascist who sucks out people's eyeballs and so again, removing from the the blind man he meets at one point his ability to see, and I know I'm way down the the road at that point. And then of the church, which is completely gone because of the earthquake, except for the I guess roof section or second story section, which stretches over, and just through some miracle, and I know this is based on a real place, but some miracle of engineering has not collapsed, and this one priest will go spend time underneath it, you know, as if daring god or fate or gravity or physics or whatever and again with mccarthy and from what you just said all the way up through the passenger how much are those things interwoven into into a singularity right god fate destiny physics who stands under it because the idea seems to be we're always standing under the weight that's about to fall on us and you might as well accept it and move on and he has Whereas the rest of them all stay at a safe distance and go, I wouldn't be in there if I were you. Important there is, you know, he, he goes on purpose under the dome, you know, almost inviting God or whatever to drop it on him. 
But it's not as an attempt to like find God or meet God. It's an attempt in the book says to like hold God to account. Like he's got beef with the creator because of the loss of his family court. And he now wants like some sort of proof. And they'll say, you know, he wants markers to be laid out and boundaries to be respected. Like this is about like what are the works of God and what are the works of humanity and what are separate from those things and how does this work? And of course, the priest who keeps coming to talk to him, you know, he never wants to put his skin in the game, right? He always stays right. outside from under the dome. So this is way in which like they're throughout that whole exchange, it's a fascinating exchange. They're kind of having two different conversations because you can't sort of have the conversation that the heretic wants to have if you're not standing under the dome, if you're not actually, you know, challenging what he thinks he's challenging. Now I think. Well, Ricky, you might speak to this. I think that gets questioned, that kind of dichotomy, even between priest and heretic, by the end of that encounter when the heretic is. Yeah, because I think it's right that like there's a way in which, like, if the dome were to fall, what that would prove, it, I mean, it certainly is about anger and some upsetness with God. But it's also about, imagine the dome fell. What that would show the heretic thinks is that then human action matters. There is an order. There is a God and he punishes and he will not, you know, if you, if you're too much of an affront to him, because he's under there and he like, there's this great bit where the people are sort of shocked at the things he says to God because he's so, you know, he challenges God to, to, to smite him essentially, but God right. doesn't. And so then what's the lesson of that? And at first you think the lesson's going to be because there's no God potentially, but then the actual lesson the heretic tells the priest at the very end is that he sees no there is a God and that the real challenge is to think that my confrontation with God and God are part of the same whole, that there's no, there isn't God over here and humanity over here. Right. They interact. It's that God is everywhere. And it, when you, and this is, I think, again, to get back to the, to some of the philosophical stakes that I think are played out throughout, it's not just that life is a sort of dynamic or reality is this kind of dynamic whole. And to right. really think, and this comes up again in the image of not just the world as tail, but the world is a tail within a tail, within a tail, within a tail. Mm. When you think everything is activity or movement or tail, then how do you mark a distinction between what is tail and what is not tail? How do you mark a distinction between inside and outside God, human, that distinction seems to break down. And that at the end of the heretic scene, we get this sense that that's the, that for McCarthy, that's the metaphysical state that we're in, understood theologically, understood philosophically, understood, I think, phys uh, in terms of physical reality and, and the laws of physics as we move into some other parts of his work. But that's the challenge then that we're sort of left with at the end of that scene. Well, it's very Emersonian, isn't it? The whole notion of nature and the oversold, and you have to learn how to work within reality by understanding first what the use of is nature, what your nature is, how you fit into nature. And of course, one of the things that we that Emerson protests in his essay, Nature, is that we divorce ourselves from the notion of nature, not thinking we're part of it. And, of course, that's maybe represented in the book by the wolf itself. And absolutely, the inability of any of the civilized folk, either Americans or Mexicans, in being able to handle the wildness of the wolf, their distrust of it, their fear of it, and only Billy is able to kind of bridge the gap in the sections we see. It is interesting to think that we know that the first dogs were wolves that became, if not tamed, befriended by humans. And so there comes a point with this wolf when he takes off her muzzle, he takes off her collar. And when he goes into the pit where she's fighting the fighting dogs, she doesn't turn on him. She leans against him where she knows that he's her friend somehow, despite the fact that he's hauling her around and tied her up and all these things, you know, in the first portion of book one. 
So it's interesting just to think about that whole idea of the wolf is nature, the wolf is wild, how she relates to Billy and all that as well. After she's killed, he, he trades his rifle for it for the body. And then, you know, because he promised he's going to bring her back to the mountains. Yeah. And then he has a kind of rebirth of a sorts there in, in the, the wild and that nature that, that he needs is the wolf. It's working both ways there. And so that lever action rifle is, of course, again, one of those symbols of American dominance in the Old West, right? Everyone wanted the Winchester 73 or the Henry or a, a carbine version of one of those. And so we see it in the same way that John Grady carries his grandfather's peacemaker into, into Mexico and all the pretty horses. He carries the rifle down. But it's really interesting that Billy, I mean, two things occur. First, he gives up the rifle for the wolf. And you could say, as some critics have said, this is, of course, the family's one weapon, which he took away with him. And when they are assaulted later, they don't have that kind of protection. The other thing is he then switches to a bow and arrow. And we have that really fascinating moment when he just kind of arbitrarily, very much in the way of the the ancient mariner on in the rhyme who shoots the albatross with his crossbow billy shoots this hawk turning in a gyre overhead with the bow and arrow and then he regrets it and later throws away the bow and arrow what do you guys make of that whole sequence regarding you know all this we're saying i think a key element that runs through all of mccarthy's fiction is in this in this sense of trying to understand the nature of reality and then trying to understand humanity's place in it he's you know constantly fascinated with humanity's relationship to nature. In the first quote John uh, mentioned at the very beginning, where you have this kind of vision of what, what stops humans from seeing the true nature of the world, seeing the trees, seeing the, the nature of existence. It's that we take things to be static that are in fact dynamic. Hmm. We, we represent the world and we take those representations to be the truth as opposed to just representations. And you see this in, for example, a, that great scene where the, the four men, uh, it's in book two where they're looking for the horses and they're trying to get to a town and there's four men. One, a man draws a map on the ground for them. And then there's four other men there who sort of mock the map. And, but you get in this really deep discussion about the ability for maps to represent the world, uh. et cetera. And so, and I think here, whether it's technology understood as rifles or technology understood as maps or technology, maybe even understood as something like language, which the problem of representation is a constant problem in McCarthy. I think what McCarthy's always kind of bumping up against you get this sense that those tools are not doing what we think they're doing. They're not providing us what we think they're providing us. You know, for Billy to give away his gun, you could read it lots of ways. But one thing is, it's clear that he has an obligation to the wolf that's never totally articulated, right. but is just certain. Like, it, it just, he has to, like, once he's captured her, once he's looked her in the eye and interacted with her, he must take her, he can't take her back to her his family. He can't kill her. He has obligations now that I'm not sure he even understands. And they just, all of book one, in some sense, develops this. And then what happens at the very end, of course, is that he fails in that obligation, right? right. And then book two starts. And, you know, the beginning of book two is, you know, lives are, you know, doomed enterprises you yeah. know, kind of divide lives into before and after. And the rest of the book is after this doomed enterprise. And I think there's lots to say there. But for, for me, I think it's that McCarthy's skepticism, skepticism, McCarthy's questioning about yeah. whether the tools we have and the things we take to be defining of humanity, reason, technology, weapons, language, are actually doing what we think they're doing. Are they making us masters of the world or making us miss what the world is actually doing? 
it's interesting. If you were to ask me, how does this volume two of the Border Trilogy coming right after book one? And of course, it, book one ends at a, in a kind of questioning, dubious moment. And at this point, I'm actually talking about all the pretty horses. Then I would have assumed, I did assume before this novel came out, that it would be about John Grady and the next part of his life. So when this book came out, I was very surprised. I was even more surprised as another 16-year-old boy who goes on painful adventures down in Mexico, although in this case, it's much more difficult. I was also surprised that he said it you know, a decade or so earlier than the other novel. Maybe maybe not quite that much, but several years earlier than the other than the other novel. So then the other thing I would have said at first is his well, John Grady's got that mystical connection to horses. And with Billy, it's interesting because we get on the one hand, he does end up with this kind of mystical connection to the wolf that he fells. And then and I think we will come back to this in a little bit, but there is but the importance of the horses, and particularly his father's horse, does become very significant in the rest of the novel, just not so much the first book. So again, it's doing interesting things where all that's concerned. What about the use of just dreams and prophecies in this novel? I mean, it's all through the trilogy, but it's particularly hit hard here. And I should mention that Chip Arnold published an article right after the Border Trilogy finished called Go to Sleep, Dreams and Visions in the Border Trilogy, which I think really identifies this as an important thing that McCarthy's doing. But what do you guys make of that in general, the use of dreams and dreaming throughout the books? You got to do this without talking too much about the end of cities. I think you can reference actually the coda. Well, well, we've given our spoiler warning, and I'll I'll say again, there's probably a spoiler <laughs> warning here for Cities of the Plain. I did, well, I did have a listener kind of point out to me I'd not given spoiler warnings, and then all the pretty horses discussion with Alan Joseph, it did the ending of Cities did come up, and he was had not got that far, so I did apologize for that. But now at this point, we will have spoilers also for Cities of the Plain as well. Just to sort of set this up, you know, I think. Rick's already talked some about the way in which we're, we're pretty convinced that this book is fundamentally philosophically about the nature of reality and the nature of humans' relationship. And so dreams, just as a basic way in McCarthy, are, and this is elsewhere too, right? They're, they're all, by definition sort of unreal, right? So they're very often in literature, and this is true of McCarthy, at least initially, seem to be set up as a kind of alternative to, to what's really happening. Right. I think that falls apart, though. I mean, well, let's go to page 400 of this book. Let's look at one of his dreams here. You can take the critics out of the classroom, but you can't take the classroom out of critic. As we, <laughs> sorry, I, that's okay. I, I gave a presentation on the passenger before it was released, working off of a printed dummy copy to a community um, home, and I said, "Well, on page, you know, if we turn to page two fifty, and I looked up, no one had the book but me, but automatically as a professor, I was turning them to page two fifty. But now we're having four hundred. <laughs> Apologies for being professor. No, I hear you. Of course, at this point, Boyd is is dead. In fact, he has recovered his bones. But in the, it, we're told in the night he slept. Boyd came to him and squatted by the deep embers of the fire as he'd done times by the hundreds and smiled a soft smile. It was not quite cynical, 
And he took off his hat and held him before and looked down into it. In the dream, he knew the boy was dead and that the subject of his being so must be approached with a certain caution. For that which was circumspect in life must be doubly so in death. And he no way to know what word or gesture might subtract him back into the nothingness out of which he'd come. So it's it's this metaphor moment where in the dream, he knows it's a dream. He knows he's right. dead. He knows he has to be careful about talking about the fact that he's dead because he may lose this, this dream of boy. So he's interested in knowledge here. He, he, he loves his brother. And of course, that will be true all the way to the end of the season. One of the last things that happens in that book is he has a dream about his, his dead brother now late into his 80s, right? Right. There's, but there's still this idea where he wants to know the, the state of boy, the state of his existence, the state of his own existence, but he knows he has to be careful of asking this. This has to be tried carefully. And of course, he does eventually in that dream come around to asking him, and we're told that boy smiles but doesn't answer. One thing I love about the Border Trilogy, I think that he he leaves us these little dream fragments all the way along, and then that that final coda yeah. really fills that out. I don't know, Rick. Do you want to speak to this? I'm not sure. I think they're prophetic, though. I think that the distinction between dream and reality in McCarthy is is always a loose affair. And I think this relates to the sort of philosophical themes of the novel in this kind of way in which once you start questioning that, that as the heretic does, once he sees that God is not over he, over on one side and humans are on the other side or nature is not over on this side and culture is over on this side, like these kinds of dualisms have to break down. Of course, dream and reality is a kind of dualism that therefore has to break down in some way. And I think that what you often see in McCarthy is a sort of rumination on that fact. And, I, and it, this is not exactly a, a dream, but I think it's in there in terms of the prophecies. And that's the, the way that the Corrado works in this book. So there's this, ah. you know, sort of epic story that's told. And Boyd becomes a figure in that uh, right. kind of revolutionary figure. And there's this long discussion that's had about sort of the nature of the Corrado, the nature of these kinds of tales. And when you've, when you've set up a, a metaphysics where all the world's a tale, yeah, there's an obvious connection here. But one of the things that I think McCarthy constantly comes back to is troubling the certainty we have between dream and reality or between the stories we tell and the reality they're about. And just to, to move to maybe something we, we want to talk about when you think about the three histories of the airplane that get told yeah. in book four at the end, where you get these three stories about an airplane that crashes in the mountains. And they're, they're three different stories. But the the last, the third of them, is the idea that um, this airplane crashed. And the third one is that, that in some sense, it doesn't matter if the airplane crashed or not, or if the airplane was real, it's the story in some sense has made it real. And that idea of this sort of, you know, we're, we're bards of our own existence, we're narrating our uh, all the world's a tale that we're telling. But then what happens that's fascinating is we get these three histories and you think, oh, I see, you know, a kind of it, it really was an airplane, it crashed this way. It really was an airplane, it crashed a different way. Or it, there's no airplane at all. It's just a story that we tell. But, you know, and that's the sort of history you have. And then we get a, a, a fourth possibility introduced afterwards, which is we meet a, a, a writer who comes in and goes, oh, yeah, I'm the guy that commissioned uh, getting that airplane out of the mountains. There's no way any of those stories are actually true. <laughs> and that's never resolved, right? Because yeah. you don't, you aren't left with the certainty of knowing which one. And I think the same thing happens with, dreams constantly that they, you have these dreams that are they are they prophetic they often are are they real they are as real as any other elements in the book often and so i think that's the fascinating thing for me about mccarthy's use of dreams you see this also on the road he does this all over the place right where dreams well, and reality mix together yeah, yeah absolutely 
So, well, and here he dreams of his father, and we have those images of his father appearing. His father's afoot and lost in the desert. In the dying light of that day, he could see his father's eyes. He's looking toward the west where the sun had gone, where the wind was rising out of the darkness, which again reminds us of those closing pages of All the Pretty Horses. And, of course, this is, I take it to mean, just like when John Grady awakes and knows his father has died, I think this is when Billy's father has died. And, of course, we also have one seer who tells him, well, you're an orphan now. He goes, I'm not an orphan. He goes, yes, you are. And later, when he's looking for his brother, they say, you know, you had two brothers. One's dead, but the other one you'll find. And so we do have these kind of prophetic moments, and it helps when you write the last book first, at least in screenplay form, and go back and work toward it. So it really gives a a nice structure to all these things. And and it and I think you're right. If if with McCarthy saying the whole nature of reality is more about our inability, our ability and inability to provide structure to it more than is really there, and that's how we perceive the reality then dreams would be just one of our other ways to do that. And we know that he's fascinated with the the subconscious and the unconscious and how they interact and how the creative act and dreaming are all, again, to him, interwoven out of the same tapestry. And so I think I think you're absolutely right. It's where he's, he's touching on something. And, of course, Alejandra sees the ending of John Grady's part of Cities of the Plain in her dream in, in that novel. So there is this kind of constant keeping tags and the i guess billy's guest under the overpass wants to speak about the ancient dream of the ancient people sacrificing someone to an altar it is interesting to me how much everyone he meets in mexico is a serious person of faith and we know that in the 20s and 30s much of the revolutions were driven by people who saw uh, the Roman Catholic Church in Mexico as a big part of the problem that they're allied with these these governments allied with fascist powers and mistreatment of people and it's also an agenda that you know the communist front pushed around the world right let's disassociate ourselves from these churches and that'll be one of the entry points into these different cultures so what about i mean it, because i don't think the hospitality that is shown so dramatically throughout this novel is quite separable from the faith these people also have. Whereas Billy, to me, I'm not sure if any of us could figure out exactly where he stands on faith, capital F, uh, what do you believe happens to you, is there a God, all that, or lowercase f, do you think things will work out okay? I see him kind of in contrast to a lot of these people. What do you think, John? Well, I mean, the sacred in McCarthy is obviously a, a very fraught thing. And I just want to tie this back into unity and, and your hospitality point. There's this way in which for McCarthy, the simple kindnesses, the, the acts of hospitality are in some ways the most powerful kind of sacred notion of the good that he will put forth. And you see this, yeah. you know, it's very simple. You know, he, this is not a kind of grand gesture. And that becomes the sort of point. And I think that and this, he, he's a tough writer in some ways because of all the violence, and, and it can be pretty pretty dark. But I actually have always seen him as a very optimistic and positive thinker in this way, where there is this way in which human hospitality, human decency, human kindness, kindness right. sin, is God to some extent, is the good in a kind of ontological, metaphysical sense. Yeah. And it's really quite beautiful in some of these passages. You get that, that one in, in Horses where uh, Diary Cole's on the wagon and there's... I don't have that book in front of me, but this is the thing about how the, the camaraderie and the brother he felt have sustained him for nights and months or whatever. And it's this amazing moment. It's very understated in the book. 
And we see that same thing even when we were talking about the, the caretaker and then telling the story of the heretic and the priest. You know, he's he's having a meal with him. It's just right. theory of rest and hospitality that they shared during that entire exchange. And that, that wagon scene is repeated in this book, Magnified Times 100, because Billy and Boyd are on the run. Boyd's been shot. He's about to fall out of the saddle. And they say, pull him into the, or maybe it's a truck here, not a wagon, but they say, yeah, pull him in here. And we'll save him but simply because he's an, a lone guy on the run and he's a kid. You know, they have no idea what he's done or how bad he is or any of that stuff. I was in graduate school and all the pretty horses came out. And there was a certain amount of negativity towards McCarthy because some of the people in Mexico were bad guys. Anyone who's read a lot of McCarthy will tell you that some of the characters anywhere, everywhere, anytime are bad guys in the world of McCarthy. He doesn't dwell in a world of very nice, kindly people who just make cupcakes for each other all the time. I mean, there's a there's an evil lurking in the shadows almost anywhere you want you happen to be in his worldview. And so it's not limited to Mexico. And in fact, of course, the Mexicans kind of chide John Grady on having a foolish, kind of naive American view of what evil is. And so I think this novel, again, pushes back against that notion because so many of these people are so kind indecent to Billy. And and most of the trouble Billy gets in and Boyd get in, they kind of bring upon themselves in the same way that Blevins brings the trouble down in the first first novel, which is not to say that they're always completely in the wrong with what they do, because they don't, to my knowledge, I don't know that Billy ever purposely hurts anyone other than the guy who falls off his horse and breaks his neck because of that. Can't Can you guys remember a scene where Billy actually he fires off shots at random, I think, from the shotgun, but I don't know that he ever actually shoots a person. I don't think so. There's an encounter at the end when, when the horse is stabbed. It kind of yeah. arbitrarily, you know, it, it's, it's really a horrific scene. But I don't think he retaliates there. No, he's he's very passive during that scene. In fact, kind of surprisingly so, given all he's been through. And I feel like that, and that's something maybe we can come back to as well. Uh Returning for a minute back to his focus on the wolf, he's a kid. He's trying to prove he's a man to his father. He's 16, that very, very strange age for young men, maybe for young women too. But for young men, especially young rural men, you're starting to think of yourself as a man. You want to be respected. You can do a man's work, but you're not quite there yet. You haven't been, as as the old Western riser put it, up the creek and over the mountain yet, which, of course, Billy certainly does that in this novel. And why does he decide to take the wolf to Mexico? We know kind of when he does and where he does. I don't even know if he knows he's doing himself till he tells someone about it, but he decides he's going to take him to Mexico. I mean, take her to Mexico. Why, why do you think that is? So I think that in some sense we get told this and whether you think of it as a prophecy or a kind of instruction we have to talk about, but Donna Newfall tells Billy that if he he presents him this problem that that humans aren't able to see the nature of the world and we aren't able to see the nature of the world for, the, for reasons that have to do with humanity making things making what is dynamic static and therefore missing the true essence of things and he says if you want to solve like he doesn't put it in terms of solving but he's like if you want to sort of get past this you have to find the places find the place where the acts of men and acts of God are of a piece. Where you can't mm. tell the difference between men. And, and I read that as we have to find this site where this kind of dualism between humans and nature breaks down. You have to find 
And I think this is this is a, a physical space, a place that this can happen as much as it is sort of metaphysical or, or sort of a conceptual idea of a way to approach the world. So I get it. So there's a way in which I think we have to read his his taking the wolf to Mexico and the feeling of obligation that he has and this sort of sense of he, he has to bring her back to Mexico mm-hmm. to be with her own kind. But also, you know, it's clear that over that journey, and you have all these beautiful scenes of them at the fire where, uh, and the description of like looking into her eyes and what we see there. And, right. and that it, it, and this is a, a wonderful thing about McCarthy, I think, is McCarthy never tells us exactly why, because were he to tell you, oh, it's just this, these resonances of the, the spiritual, the metaphysical, the scientific, the sort of array of human possibilities would be reduced just down to, oh, he does it for some you know, principled ethical reason or something. And it's all of those things at once. And so but I think it's about trying, he's searching after, he wants to bring her back to find this space where the acts of men and acts of God are of a piece. And one might wonder if like at any moment in the novel, I think you have a number of people he meets, the seers and so forth, who talk about that space. So when, mm. for example, the the blind man who has his eyes removed during the revolution quite horrifically, you know, what's the upshot? Anyway, he's a blind man, and there's all this discussion about the darkness and you know what it is to live in darkness. And he sees that actually darkness is everything is actually darkness. But what's the lesson he gives him at the end? The lesson is to listen. Right. That he's like, what what we have to do is listen. And his description is when he stopped trying to regain the world of sight and, and gave himself over to his condition, suddenly people would come to him and just tell him their secrets. Right. And he was taken care of by people on the road. And so you have this sense where there's a sort of like giving ourselves over to the to, to the nature of reality or to the flow of things will lead us to where we're supposed to be. And I think there's kind of something like that with the wolf where Billy can't say why he has to, but he has to sort of give himself over to what has happened and just follow it through, not knowing exactly where it's going. You know, McCarthy does something very weird with that wolf, and I think he only does anything like this one other time in all his books. And that is we get a number of paragraphs told from the wolf's point of view. Yeah. And in literature, I can point you right to the progenitor where I'm almost positive he got the idea, and it's from The Short Happy Life of Francis McComber by Hemingway. And if you read Hemingway, he is the writer who is so felicitous to focused point of view. So in the third person, he's usually stuck in one person's point of view, and there'll be a very clear transition to move to another. Instead of the old 19th century, you know, Rick was thinking this, but John was thinking this while Scott was thinking that. That's not Hemingway, but in Shorty Life of Francis McComber, we jump into the wounded lion's point of view and his just desperate hurt and anger and rage and wanting to fight back. And so there's a courage that he represents. And it's to show really that McComber for a second comes to understand a little bit of what it is to have courage. And then, of course, his wife, spoiler alert, puts a bullet through his brain. But accident, of course, or on purpose, accidentally on purpose, somewhere in there somewhere. And so McCarthy, we get a little bit, I think, of the weird familiar cat in The Orchard Keeper, where like the owl is coming over. But 
other than that, I think this is the only time we ever see something told from an animal's point of view. Am I wrong on that? I don't remember the horses having much to say in other books, but of course there are no animals in the road. Yeah, I mean, I, I think maybe if whales and men, I mean, I guess it just oh, okay. depends on what you want to sort of say about whales and horses. I mean, well, whales and wolves, I mean, there it's a different, I mean, that's a very different kind of text, though. Right. Unfilmed screenplay. But it's yeah. also different than in The Orchard Keeper. So I was thinking about in The Orchard Keeper, you know, the, the cat is has this man- malevolent element to it. Yeah. In the way that the dog in The Orchard Keeper is actually that beautiful scene at the end where you get, and it's not for the dog's point of view, but it's Aether's dog that's really, that sees the truth of something or is yeah. for him, you know, this really prophetic scene at the end. But I was thinking here, so it's also that you get told the point of view of the wolf and the point of view that one of the most beautiful scenes in the book to my mind is her description of her, her mate is caught in a trap. Yeah. How did she get here? Well, her mate's caught in a trap and she stays, but her mate's like, they're going to come and you have to leave. And so attacks her right. because he's driving her off for her own protection. Right. So you actually have, it's not just that you get from the wolf's perspective, but you get something that happens previous to their encounter. So you get this kind of memory of the wolf and, you know, uh, like it, it's a much more, even if it exists somewhere else in McCarthy, there's no other place where you get this robust an account of, what an animal other than a human animal uh, is thinking and feeling where they become an actual character that has pain and loss and possibilities. Right. And it is fascinating just to hear about how smart she is, all the ways that she Mm -hmm. moves around the traps. And it's one of those things again, and I've written on this recently on uh, like you see with Ike McCaslin going after uh, the bear in Faulkner's novella, the bear is part of go down Moses where it's only by kind of relinquishing much of who he is as a representative of Western white incursion into the wilderness that Ike is ever able to actually be in the presence of the bears, this kind of symbol of vanishing nature. And so Billy has to really come to know that wolf and really spend his time out there and really start thinking it through. And it's still mostly by by pure luck that he gets her. Yeah, He kills the wolf so that they won't torture it any further in the dog fights. He trades his rifle for the body. He he goes up into the mountains and eventually buries the body. And we have this very long time where he doesn't go back to his family in New Mexico. I'm not exactly sure how much time passes. I really meant to try and keep track of that this last time through. I don't know if you actually can keep track of it, but it's, it's months, right? Yeah. And he finally returns He's lost all this weight. His clothes are falling apart. The horse is in bad shape. And he finds out that it seems that the the Indian they give food to in the opening of the novel has come back with some buddies and they've attacked and, and raided the ranch house and killed his parents. And they called for Boyd to kill him and he hid. And it's that calling for Boyd that makes us think it must be that guy, although that's not necessarily the case. And so then he and Boyd without really talking about it or thinking about it, end up on a quest to recover the horses. And I think the first thing that I notice is, and I'm a little curious about that, and one of the things I've been working on for a while is the use of family in McCarthy. The horses are always his father's horses. Although, interestingly, as someone has written, Boyd rides of his mother's horse. But they don't say the ranch's horses or our parents' horses. It's always his father's horses. What do you guys, what do you guys make of that? Just that need to go, 
to go on this quest. And it's not really even a quest for vengeance, right? I mean, the, the Hollywood screenplay for this is they get guns and they go after the guys who did it. And they don't have any burning desire to do that. In fact, those guys are never seen again. Well, even when they do eventually see the horses, I mean, it's almost a random encounter. He looks up and yep. saw the horses were walking by. I mean, it's not like they like track him down or something. I mean, I think it's a little bit hard in McCarthy to talk about family without talking about masculinity. I think that's yeah. And McCarthy's obviously fit very fairly and caught some criticism for his portrayal of certain types of masculinity and for his portrayal or lack of portrayal of femininity. Right. I mean, Nelson Sullivan's work is as good as anyone. Yeah. So there is a kind of masculine inheritance that the horses, it's his father's horses. And, you know, you already said it earlier a minute ago, he wants to prove that he's a man as much to his father as to himself. Yeah. Trying to the wolf, right? And so it's this this kind of masculine need to sort of reclaim what was his father's and, you know, his own birthright, as it were. But I think that this goes back to what Rick said a while ago, you know, what's always happened in his books, wherever you go look for something, that's not what they end up finding. Yeah. And, you know, this 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 attempt to reclaim what was his father's or what should be his and his brother's or however you want to say it. I mean, that's not what happens. Yeah. And so I think this is where McCarthy's much more subtle on this than he often gets credit for. Where he's, he's challenging some of those kinds of notions of patriarchal world. Yeah. Okay. Rick, you look like you want to jump in. Yeah, I think that, and, and but why doesn't he, right? It, it's like, and you have this in a number of places where there's a discussion about the past and about the ability to redeem the past. And constantly in McCarthy, there's this sort of notion that that's a troubled enterprise, like that kind yeah. of a, a vision of redemption or reconciliation or something. And so I think it's also, to John's point, I think that there is a kind of critique here, too, of that kind of masculinity and that kind of impulse and that kind of patrilineal notion. But also, I think there's a way in which, you know, it's an interesting question because there's a way in which there's not not an explanation, as you say, right, there's not an explanation exactly given. It's just like what's got to be done. And I think there's something similar in, in all the pretty horses where right. Blevins' horse gets stolen and through his own fault because he had the thunderstorm and there's whole this whole yeah, set yeah. of events. And there he wants help to, to get it back. And Rollins doesn't want to do it. He's like, this is a terrible idea. Let me tell you, it's this. It won't work for this reason, this reason, this reason. John Grady Cole's like, you're exactly right, but we got to go do it. Yeah. And but his assessment of why you got to go do it is because but it is Blevins horse. Right. But it is. And, and they're it's like the right thing to do. Ra right. And Rollins is like, but we can't prove it is. And he's like, doesn't change it. It is. It is his horse. So it should be his. And so I think there's there's also this sense where I wonder if there's something it reminded me of that in the, the sort of certainty of just but there are horses and we're going to go get them because, you know, that's just what we just that has to be done. And so that. I, I think, although that's troubled in McCarthy, there's always this really strong, there's elements of a really strong moral ethos that yeah. often isn't even understood by the characters necessarily, but it's just they must do the thing. And when John Grady, for example, falls in love in Cities of Plains, he's like, this is a terrible idea. And he's like, I know it's a bad idea, but but it's over. I, it's yeah. done now. I, yeah. I, I have to do it. You know, the Parham's are very much not the Cole family. So Mrs. Parham is providing the kind of moral center to the family. For instance, are you going to set a good example or not? She says to the father, and he goes, I guess we'll go down on Monday, not on Sunday. And the at one point when they know where the horses are, and there's the easy thing is to just get out of there. The hard thing is to keep going after them. And he says, what do you think the old man would say? You know what he'd say. And so it's trying to live up to that image of manhood, maybe trying to live up to that notion of you protect yourself and your stuff because that's what you're supposed to do. And 
in many ways, Mrs. Parham is up to this point in McCarthy's writing, the most sympathetic, interesting mother character of all, which is amazing in that she's only in maybe a to- some total of 20 pages of the whole book scattered I mean, around. That, I don't know. The first mother, it, well, Renthe is actually, of course, the most important one, but leaving Renthe aside in the, in the Orchard Keeper, evil mom, uh, more or less, in, in Child of God, no mother to speak of. We jump into Sutri. She seems to be kind, but he clearly is undone. So that's an interesting one to set aside there. And then, of course, the problems John Grady has with his mother, which I think are probably as more about John Grady than the mother in that one. And then we jump to the same two characters in the next one. No Country for Old Men. Well, Loretta is pretty interesting in No Country for Old Men. So maybe I, I misspoke. But Miss Parham is significant. And it's just weird after her death that she plays less of a role in their sadness and mourning than the father does. It's a strange even, thing. Even with Loretta, just think about this, you know, they never had a child, but they had the one that lost a little girl. Right. And, and, you know, we get this idea that she sort of mothers some of the inmates. They come back afterwards and bring their, their wives. But yeah. She's held up as this weird, weird, this entirely kind of idealized ultimate feminine figure of this wife. And I mean, there's that moment on bridge where the truck runs by. She's not worth a chair. I think he thinks, well, yeah, you know, she would be worth killing herself over actually. She, she is like, but I'm not sure I think about it so much as a maternal figure. Yeah. Yeah. Just as a, just a strong female, a strong yeah. woman. Yeah. It's a, and then of course the, the mother in the road got her issues and then the mother dies young in the passenger in Stella Morris. So, I mean, Nell, I think has a whole nother section of, of, of stories to tell where all this is concerned. And, and of course she's done some, some great, like you said, the, the work she did with the, the border trilogy is, is actually very important where all this is concerned as well. So they get into trouble because the first guy dies that somehow becomes, or the, the man who comes with after the horses, they wave the hat in the horse's face, the horse starts rearing, he falls off, he dies. And, Later, this becomes mythologized as Boyd having challenged him in single combat in a pistol duel there in the streets, like the opening of Gunsmoke or something like that. And so Boyd, who I I feel kind of two ways about in the novel, there's a part of me that thinks he is at times a little truculent and whiny and being the that kind of younger brother figure. And then there's another part of me that thinks, well, why wouldn't he be, given how Billy treats him and how Billy's acting and Billy's circumstances? And at some point, Boyd will, decides to go off and be the Billy the Kid, Jesse James, the young outlaw on the run. And of course, this McCarthy's world is not so kind to myth making and, and heroes as songs are. So, or even, or it becomes a song because of what happens to him, not because he gets away with it all. Right. 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 Well, yeah, they're very unkind to the outlaws. The song may be nice, but the life was not. Yeah. I think that there's something interesting because I was thinking about Boyd too. I've never really understood Boyd entirely in a certain way, but one thing that struck me as always struck me is that that one of the problems that emerges is that actually takes on a certain kind of fatherly Role. position to Boyd, yeah, yeah, which, exactly. which actually drives him away in lots of ways. I think so. There's a way in which, and this is part of the year point about like why wouldn't he, given how Billy treats him, why wouldn't he act more petulant and and his you know relationship with the girl slash woman they encounter and he ultimately has a seemingly relatively long-term relationship with 
But it struck me that this is also part of the critique, I think, of the masculinity that's going on here that tries to sort of copy his father a little bit yeah. and what that precisely drives away the person that on his own account is the most important person left in his life, right? And causes a lot of, and, and you know, a lot of friction between them. And so there's a way that I'd be interested to know what, what you think about too, this sort of the, it is a critique of myth-making, but Boyd's also this figure who is not in the story for all that long in terms of total number of pages and has this like, is tied into this, tied into the story in a way that has to do with the fundamental sort of mythical role of the the hero, the you know, outlaw that also is not actually a big part of the story. There's not really a story about all outlaws either. Um, right. So. Isn't there a way in which Boyd is, is like the airplanes though too, where there's, there's the Boyd of the story and then there's the Boyd of the song. And then there's the Boyd of Billy's memory and dreams after he's dead. And yeah. He, by the end of cities, he'll, he'll describe him as the greatest brother. And he becomes almost mythically in terms of fraternity with, with Billy. And so, you know, none of these to some extent are the real boy, right? I mean, we've got to learn the lesson of the airplane. Yeah. There's a way in which he, he's always going to be kind of amorphous in that way. Go ahead, Scott. Well, and structurally, he's setting up the relationship between Billy and John Grady in Cities of the Plain, which again is the first narrative that McCarthy wrote. And although the, the story and all the characters change quite a bit, that's the plot narrative that he sticks with all the way through the trilogy. So he writes, I, I think it's his longest novel, maybe second longest after Sutri, but I, I believe it's his longest in terms of word count. It's in the top two. It, he goes back, he writes all the pretty horses and in this book, but it's all in service of setting up that plot of Cities of the Plain, which is the shortest of the three. When we get to a podcast on Cities of the Plain, we'll go into more detail, but as I've said before, I really don't feel like the Billy in Cities of the Plain is this Billy. He's more like an amalgam of Rollins and Billy in a way. Now, until we get to the coda, the last section of Cities of the Plain, where we return to the crossings, wandering, quiet, searching for home, searching for answers, searching for wisdom, Billy, who simply is not in the first two thirds of that novel. And Boyd is, it's interesting, like the girl doesn't like Billy, who is the one who goes into the camp who makes a decision to go save her. And of course, Boyd is wanting him to. So they're in accord and he's the one who's on foot, who has to get, they swipe the knife at him, kicks him. He's the one carrying the shotgun during all this. Boyd tosses him the shotgun in a very kind of Western way, but she likes Boyd. And of course, Boyd's called the, the blonde, basically the blonde gringo, right? The Guero, which has a nice etymological, makes you think of war and all that kind of stuff, but also, it's, you know, slang for the the kind of fair-haired one, fair-haired yeah. boy. And yeah. and Billy looks more like his grandmother at some point. So he's a little darker of of features and darker haired, uh, we guess, given that he has a uh, one of his grandparents is Mexican-American. So, or, or just Mexican, I, I guess. So it's interesting that she chooses Boyd in all those ways. And maybe it's through her interest in Boyd and him having to live up to her image of who he is as a kind of hero that Boyd becomes so foolish that he's led astray by the girl, just like John Grady leads himself astray twice over, over the girls. You can't tell any of the story of this trilogy without simply looking at the main character's ages. So Billy starts in book one, he's 16 and he's 17 sometime in book two. 
And then eventually he's a little bit older yet. And he's still 17 when the war breaks out, right? And because he has to get permission, but his parents are dead. And Boyd's two years younger than him. So it's kind of like when you're teaching Romeo and Juliet, your students, the story only makes sense if they're teenagers. If they're grownups, the whole idea about I'm going to kill myself uh, because of this and she did and all this, uh, none of that's going to work. But for teenagers, it's exactly how it works. And someone who's in their late 20s, who's been dumped and burned a few times, would see Alejandra's problems or what's going on in the Mexico and said, yeah, I'm just not going to do it this time. I've been there before. I've learned my lesson. I'm moving on from it. You'd have a such re- reaction rather than a Boyd reaction <laughs> to the situation. I had a professor one time who has an essay question in Shakespeare class said, change roles between Hamlet and Othello. How did the stories work out? And of course, they work out perfectly because Hamlet says, Iago, oh, you want to play chess? We can play some chess here, buddy. And they'll go back and forth. And I, I presume Hamlet's going to win. And of course, the ghost of his father shows up and says, look, this guy did this to me, kill him and end it. And Othello says, all right, done. Walks up, pulls the sword, <laughs> cuts the guy's head off. And it's a, and then, you know, sorts out the problems with the authorities, but probably does so fair enough. And But, you know, it's all about whose character's in which situation. And of course, the way that Billy and John Grady deal with these things. And of course, Billy, once Boyd is in danger, gives up all hope of going after these animals. It's not like he drops off Boyd and then goes back again for the horses, which all scatter the minute they're being chased. He tries for a little while to catch Bird, whose name has an interesting kind of homonym quality with Boyd, some shared consonants there. But then he gives up because his brother's more important to him. And of course, John Grady, on the other hand, after they get out of prison, after Rawlins is on the bus and John Grady's been dumped by Alejandra, says, I'm not leaving without my horses. You know, I got to go back to my horse. I'm not leaving them down here. And so, uh, you know, there are these interesting parallels and then divergences, parallels and divergences between the characters throughout both books. Well, it started to seem that this one was going to go pretty long, and there are a number of technical editing difficulties. And so as a result, it's being split into two podcasts. Please join us in a few weeks for part two of this discussion of The Crossing with the Brothers Elmore. So my guests today have been Jonathan Elmore, Associate Professor of English at Savannah State University and the Managing Editor of Washington Review. He is the Editor of Fiction and the Sixth Mass Extinction, Narrative in an Era of Loss and co-author of an introduction to African and Afro-diasporic peoples and influences in British literature and culture before the Industrial Revolution. Scholarship has been published in Cormac McCarthy Journal, Mississippi Quarterly, British Fantasy Society Journal, Orbit, the Journal of Liberal Arts and Humanities, and Criterion, among others. And his twin brother, Rick Elmore, the Elder, is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Appalachian State University and Senior Managing Editor of Book Reviews at Symposium, He researches and teaches in the areas of 20th century French philosophy, critical theory, animal philosophy, and Cormac McCarthy studies. He's co-editor of the Biopolitics of Punishment, Derrida and Foucault. His articles and essays appeared in Politics and Policy, a symposium Mississippi Quarterly and the Cormac McCarthy Journal, among others. Thanks as well to Thomas Fry, composed, performed, produced, and music for reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions, or the Cormac McCarthy Society 
Although in our hearts, we hope that like Hank Williams, they will someday see the light. Download and follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're agreeable, it'll help us if you provide favorable reviews on these platforms. If you enjoy this podcast, you may also enjoy the Great American Novel Podcast, hosted by myself and Kirk Kernut. To contact me, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. Despite the evening redness in the West, Reading McCarthy is also on Twitter. The website is at readingmccarthy.buzzsprout.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can click on the little heart symbol at the top of the webpage to buy the show a cappuccino. You can support the podcast at www.patreon.com forward slash reading McCarthy. Thank you for listening.